Well, from my family to yours, Merry Christmas. Uh, my family loves Christmas time, and probably it's probably my favorite, fr- favorite holiday in the year. And considering that it's Christmas Eve, you might actually expect to hear a message of the baby Jesus. Well, how about one on elders instead? Uh, we're going to go in that rate, which might actually puzzle you of why, why I would do that. And preaching the church calendar, I would submit to you, can lead to an incomplete and imbalanced theology in the church. Uh, it, it doesn't yield the long-term gospel depth and expo- that uh, expository preaching through books does. And so I want, to, to, I want you to enjoy a well-balanced diet of God's Word so that you can be doctrinally healthy, so that you can have a, a, a wide range of uh, Scripture doctrine. So I preach through books. That's what I devote myself to primarily because I believe that it's best for your growth and your godliness. So we continue with First Timothy. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is infinitely precious and relevant, and it does have to do with... 1 Timothy and elders. First of all, Christmas is right here in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The manger was a thoroughfare to the cross and to the supremacy of Christ as Savior and head of the church. Christmas is right here in 1 Timothy 2.5, which explains that there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That one mediator was laid in a manger, but he didn't stay there because he had a divine appointment with a cross. Christmas is right here in 1 Timothy 3.16, which says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. From heaven to a manger to the cross. Why? Because, as Ephesians 5 explains, Christ loved his church, gave himself up for her, and is her head. And as the head, he is preeminent in everything, as Colossians 1.18 says. So when Isaiah prophesied, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, when we hear that the government shall be upon his shoulder, when we hear that the throne of David is his, and the kingdom is his, that he upholds it with justice and righteousness forever, then there is a direct connection between the incarnation and and Christ's desire for church leadership. The best way to understand church leadership is to view it through the supremacy of Jesus Christ as head of the church. One more important Christmas connection. After the wise men arrived in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the scribes were gathered by Herod and and explained this to Herod. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Our ruler is Christ. By faith, we are the true Israel, the people of God, and our ruler will shepherd us. But how? How is he going to shepherd us? And back in October, I preached a sermon on 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, titled, How Does Jesus Shepherd You Practically? And the main point of that message was, Jesus lovingly shepherds you through qualified and called elders so you can be healthy and happy in him. And what are elders to do but to teach you and lead you according to the word of Christ through which Christ shepherds you? The better you know Jesus, 
And the better you understand his word, the better you will receive his shepherding care through qualified and godly elders who love and serve you in the word and in the sacraments. Some of the content today, just get this out in the open early, may seem self-serving for a preacher to preach. And you'll see that as we, we get into it. But my responsibility before Almighty God is to faithfully preach the text, which I intend to do for your growth and for your godliness. It's not ultimately about me. It's about what Jesus wants in his church. When verse 17 mentions that elders rule or direct the affairs of the church, it may sound threatening to you. And I hope it sounds exciting. I hope it it sounds good and helpful to you. But in case when you hear that term rule, connect with elders, that's threatening to you, I want to read for you a few verses to diffuse the tension a little bit that may be in your heart and to remind you of the goodness of Jesus' shepherding plan for your soul. Acts 20, verse 28, Paul told the elders of the church of Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, or you could say shepherd, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3, here Peter was talking to a bunch of elders from various churches uh, scattered across the world, and, and this is what he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Hebrews thirteen seventeen tells the church this, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Make no mistake, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the sovereign ruler who shepherds the sheep. But we would be remiss to ignore the good shepherding plan that Jesus puts in place, that he has for us through elders in a local church. Not only does Jesus lay out clear qualifications for these elders, but also explains what they are to do, uh, how they are to be treated, and how to make sure that elders are held accountable. That brings us to the three points regarding elders in a local church. Number one, sufficient payment for elders, sufficient payment for elders. Number two, impartial accountability for elders. Impartial accountability for elders. And number three, cautious ordination of elders. Cautious ordination of elders. These are from Jesus. These are good for the church. And they help the church uphold the beauty of the gospel. So that's what this is for. Number one, sufficient payment for elders. Now, just to be clear, this is not my attempt of asking for a raise, just so you all know that. This is God's word. Look at verses 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. There's no question about it. Elders are to rule in the local church. The NIV translates it, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. Now these two uh, words, rule and labor, uh, show up in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, which says this, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you 
and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Hard-working elders who oversee your spiritual progress is one way that Jesus cares for your soul. And, and this part is great and ensures you safe arrival into God's glorious presence. But notice the double honor is not warranted by simply ruling, but by ruling well. By ruling well, that's important. Paul then emphasized elders who labor in preaching and teaching, those elders who especially are worthy of double honor. All elders rule. This is really important for you to understand. All elders rule equally, uh, together, as equals. All elders must be able to teach, as we saw back in chapter 3, but some elders give themselves uh, more extensively to the vital role of preaching and teaching God's Word. Word and doctrine are their focus. So here's where we get the distinction between ruling elders and teaching elders. Teaching elders are often called ministers or pastors who are ordained to teach. Now, why are teaching elders especially worthy of double honor? Well, it's not because they are worthier or that somehow inherently they're better than the other elders or more valuable. Here's why. God's word holds a preeminent position in the church, and it must be faithfully explained and applied for the growth and godliness of the people. Preaching is commendable. It's a commendable calling which demands hard labor. It is in it is the inestimable value of the word of Christ preached clearly which infuses preaching and teaching with worth and honor. Preaching necessitates labor worthy of honor. I was the director of student ministry at North Park Church in Wexford, Pennsylvania, out north of Pittsburgh, uh, for about seven years. I preached maybe about three to six times a year. So I was chomping at the bit, hungry to preach, let me in the pulpit, and after coming here and preaching week after week after week, it's hit me how much of a grind the preaching process really is. Uh, I've preached over 200 messages here, and I've devoted well over 5,000 hours to preaching, and I can tell you this, it is really, really hard work. Preaching is vital to the growth and godliness of the church. Paul linked teaching with salvation in chapter 4, verse 16. That's a big deal. Don't miss the, the significance of that. Read Romans 10, honestly. Uh, Preaching the word of Christ is the means that God uses to create faith in people, to justify people, to to, uh, convict people, to save people. He uses preaching, God's word. Why double honor to teaching elders? We'll consider Romans 10, 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Honor is respect. Honor is esteem. Elders should get your respect and esteem. But what does double honor mean? If you said, okay, well, give them honor, give them respect, give them esteem. What about double honor? This term honor can also mean a price paid or a proceeds from, the, from a certain sale of property, as you see in the New Testament. Think of the word honorarium. And you'll, you'll get the idea here. Think back to chapter 5, verse 3, where true widows were to be honored, which 
equated to supporting them financially, the church supporting them. Paying hardworking gospel ministers have re- has really been around for a long, long time. Second Chronicles 31 verse 4 says this, And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. Do you see how that's working? Now consider verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. The conjunction for uh, tells you that verse 18 is an explanation of verse 17. So Paul pulls in here Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 to make a point. God cares about oxen. Isn't that cool? He cares about his creation. He, he made oxen, and God wants oxen to be treated fairly and rewarded for their hard work. But that law, back then, it, it went beyond that. If God cares for oxen, do you see where I'm going with this? How much more does he care for people? Which is the context of the law given in Deuteronomy 25. Here's the idea of the ox law. An ox works hard. He's out there working hard to tread the grain for human consumption. The ox is serving the farmer. If the ox works with the muzzle on, well, then he can't eat while he works. The poor ox can't benefit from his hard labor. Well, be kind to the ox. Take his muzzle off. Let the guy eat while he's treading the grain so that he can take in and get some pleasure from his labor. And if you do that, here's what that reflects in the ox caring. Okay, it reflects the goodness and the grace and the provision of God for he cares for his creatures. That's what that's doing in that moment. Now, imagine a pastor laboring to preach the gospel well for the joy of his people, toiling to shepherd them according to the word of God. He studies, he writes, he preaches, he administers the sacraments, he leads, he plans, he prays, he counsels, he worships, he loves, he even gently confronts sin in the people's lives, which is very difficult to do, but he does it for their sanctification. He does it for their greater joy in God. He works hard because God has called him to it, all the while, I want you to imagine that he can barely put food on the table for his family. Uh, His children are wearing rags. His family is going deeper and deeper into debt. He is stressed out. His wife is stressed out. And they are thinking of leaving the gospel ministry because they just can't make it work. Not only would that be cruel to the pastor, not only would that be cruel to his family, but it would slander the compassion, kindness, grace, and generosity of God in that church. And God's word would be dishonored and the gospel tarnished. You know, there are stingy churches uh, who impoverish their pastor and his family almost as a mark of godliness in some way. And the luster in those churches of the gospel is tarnished. It's dulled. Paul's point is that the preaching and teaching of God's word is of utmost importance for a church and it's worth compensating those who do that well. Paul added, the laborer deserves his wages. Jesus said that. Jesus said that in Luke 10.7. And a quick aside here. Here, Paul called Luke's gospel scripture. Can you see that? Meaning, Luke's gospel is breathed out by God and authoritative. 
But Jesus' point was that hardworking gospel ministers deserve fair compensation. In seminary, I had a, a professor who said that churches could not pay pastors enough uh, for what they're worth. And, and his point was not so much that pastors are so great and high and lofty, so pay them well, but that the gospel that they preach is infinitely valuable. How are you going to compensate something that has infinite worth? You can't do it. The gospel transcends price tags. The idea here is giving pastors sufficient pay, not making them rich. That's not the point. But providing for those pastors, and that's firmly attested in Scripture. Jesus, he sent out the 12, and he told them, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff. Well, what are they supposed to do? That's just preparing for the trip, man. I got to prepare for the ministry. What did he tell them? He said, for the laborer deserves his food. In Galatians 6.6, 6, Paul said, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Sometime look up 1 Corinthians 9. Paul asked in verse 7, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And then he mentioned the ox law and said it was ultimately for those who labor in the gospel. That's how he's applying it. In verse 14, he said, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Pastors should not get rich off of their people. Uh, There are some pastors, I checked this out online, who get paid, I kid you not, hundreds of thousands of dollars in compensation package uh, from their churches, let alone the royalties that often these big church pastors get for, for different materials. Paul's idea is not that. Paul's idea is sufficient payment. Sufficient payment. The ox doesn't need to eat caviar with gold dental implants. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, I would say most of the time in most churches, ruling elders are not paid in my experience. But teaching elders are paid because they typically work full-time and they carry most of the the workload. But any elder who rules well, especially those preaching and teaching elders, are worthy of double honor. From the bottom of my heart, I want to thank Jerusalem Church for abundantly caring for me and my family, over and above. I just want to thank you for that. From the very beginning of my ministry here at Jerusalem Church, um, you have given me double honor. And I have felt that. I, I am so thoroughly blessed and I am so thankful for you. My, my family is abundantly cared for and I am committed to continue to work really, really, really hard here uh, to give myself to preaching and leading you well and to godliness to be an example to you. And I don't ever want to take advantage of that office. And sometimes I think through those things and I just wonder, you know, I, I don't want to take advantage because I, I'm here for your benefit and you're being so gracious. But you know, I want you to think ahead. Someday I won't be the pastor here. And some other man with his family is going to come and stand in this pulpit to continue the faithful ministry here. And I want that guy and his family to be taken care of as well. This has to be in the ethos and the fabric of our church. Your generosity towards me 
This is what it does. It testifies to the extravagance of the gospel. So thank you. Thank you. What about elders who don't rule well? Sometimes elders are not worthy of double honor. And they misuse God's word. They teach strange doctrines and weird things. And they abuse the sheep. Well, they should not be supported. They should not be in the ministry. Now, how should their misconduct be addressed in the church? Well, Jesus explained how to apply the gospel in these situations, which brings us to point number two, impartial accountability for elders. Impartial accountability for elders. The gospel protects elders, uh, but it also keeps them accountable. Here's what Paul said. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Elders are far, far, far from perfect. Uh, But sometimes they're unjustly targeted. Uh, One false accusation of an innocent pastor can result in the ruin of his ministry. Perception oftentimes trumps reality, and Satan loves it because it tarnishes the gospel. Timothy was not even to consider, not even to entertain, not even to, to listen to, Uh, an accusation against an elder unless those accusations were founded on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You know, some accusations are completely absurd, completely absurd, and should be dismissed immediately because they originate from one angry and ill-motivated person. So this rule, it shows up several places because this is just, this is kind of God to give us the law like this. Deuteronomy 19.15, consider this. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. The Mosaic law was gracious in that way. Jesus explained the process of godly confrontation in Matthew 18, 16. First, you go to that person directly. And then Jesus said this, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This helps prevent uh, false accusations from smearing a pastor's good reputation, which people want to do. Some people want to do that. John Calvin captured why this preventative measure uh, is so important. Listen to what he said. I reply, this is a necessary remedy against the malice of men, for none are more liable to slanders and calumnies than godly teachers. Not only does it arise from the difficulty of their office, that sometimes they either sink under it or stagger or halt or blunder, in consequence of which wicked men seize many occasions for finding fault with them. But there is this additional vexation that although they perform their duty correctly so as not to commit any error whatever, they never escape a thousand censures. And this is the craftiness of Satan to draw away the hearts of men from ministers that instruction may gradually fall into contempt. This thus not only is wrong done to innocent persons in having their reputation unjustly wounded, but the authority of the sacred doctrine of God is diminished. Calvin uncovered the most um, significant problem with this. The authority of the sacred doctrine of God is diminished. 
Using any means possible, Satan wants to pull men and women away from preachers. But you've got to know why so that the gospel will eventually become distasteful for those people and and the power of the gospel will be diminished in their lives. His desire is to slander the gospel of Jesus Christ and he'll attack the preacher to do it. But what if an elder is guilty? Do elders get a pass because they have the office? Do we just look the other way because that's an elder? No way. Not in a million years. That'll wreck a church. Jesus wants their sin confronted with a stern public rebuke. When Paul wrote, as for those who persist in sin, persist, keep going in sin, I think it assumes that those sinning elders had been confronted privately. For their sin. But yet, they just keep on going. I don't give a rip what you say. I'm going to keep on this path. And I think Hymenaeus and Alexander from chapter 1 might be two examples of this. If elders continue in their sin after being privately confronted, Jesus wants them sternly admonished in the presence of all so they and others stand in fear. Fear of sin itself, fear of God's judgment, and fear of being called out publicly for the sin that they're engaged in. This works, folks. Is public rebuke too severe? Because I bet some of you are kind of like, whoa, never seen that. Are you sure we should be doing this? Well, let me ask you this question. Is sin serious? Is sin serious? Does sin actually destroy people's lives? Does it? Is it okay when the gospel is insulted by the choices and actions of those who preach it? Is that okay? Jesus cares about this. You see, to overlook or tolerate sin would be to disregard the enemy within the gates. And we all should have a healthy fear of falling into sin. I don't want that. I don't want to go against my loving father that way. I don't want to be called out for it. I don't want to lose my ministry that I have. I have a fear of this, but my God will keep me. It's not a paralyzing fear. When an elder sins, and elders do sin, their hatred of sin as a godly man and love of Christ must drive them right away to confession and repentance and faith and to receive forgiveness. God will forgive them, and and in some cases, he will reinstate their ministry. But if that elder persists in sin, keeps going in sin, they must be called out publicly in order to instill fear in others and the congregation. Is this painful? You bet. This is hard to do. It's painful to do. But it is right and it is good and it is what Jesus, he sends a message through this, the seriousness of sin and how to handle it. When people see this, they say, this church takes sin seriously. This church takes the holiness of God seriously. When discipline is done right, the gospel is upheld and esteemed and God receives glory and that's why this is important. You know, Paul called out Peter publicly for his sin. Read about it in Galatians 2. God-honoring rebuke is gospel ministry. Paul added weight to this. In verse 21, he said this. Don't, don't miss this statement. It's huge. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. 
Why do this, Timothy? God is watching. Jesus Christ, the King, is watching. Even a a myriad of elect angels are watching as witnesses. You have a celestial scene watching what's happening here. I want you to consider for a moment the child athlete. Some of you grew up playing sports, so this might, you might identify with this. Often there are two parallel thoughts running in the mind of a child athlete. I don't want to do anything wrong and make my dad mad. And perhaps deeper, I want to do this right because I love my dad and I want to please him. Now that might, you might have no idea what I just said, but I bet some of you are like, I know exactly what you mean. It's get this fear, man. What if dad finds out and I do something stupid and I fumble in the backfield or something like that? What's he going to think? What's he going to say? And then there's other part. I just love my dad. I just want him to be proud of me. I, so I, I hope I can do this right because I want to please him. There are a lot of people that identify with that. So let me say this. God is watching. And that brings a certain element of fear doing something wrong in front of your dad. But because God is our Father, it's not just, yo, don't mess up. I'm so scared that God's going to do... God is watching doesn't have to mean just that. It can go further to say, my Father who loves me is watching. I've got to get this right. And He's going to provide through His Spirit the way for me to please Him He's given me all I need to succeed. Dad, this is for you. You're watching. I'm going to do this right. Where is that part of it as well? I mean, that, I think that's here. Watch me, Daddy. Be, be proud of me, Daddy, because look at your grace at work in me that we're going to confront some things here in this church because this is what you want for us. So, so, so Father, I, I'll do the hard gospel ministry for your sake to please you because you've asked me to do it. But then in this whole process, two temptations arise when trying to handle accusations and the sin of elders. One, prejudice, and two, partiality. You can go in both ways. Prejudice, they did what? And all of a sudden, they're guilty before they've even had a chance. You just already pegged them as guilty. Truth matters, people. What actually happens matters. So Timothy was to follow this gospel protocol to make sure that the pastors and elders are not getting smeared. But then partiality. Do you realize what this would do to our church if people found out that an elder did that? We've got to keep this quiet. Let's put it over here in the corner. And at that moment, you begin to turn a blind eye to sin. You begin to overlook sin. You begin to treat it lightly. Favoritism shatters churches. You want to destroy a church? You do what I just described. Don't handle the sin. The law must expose sin so that the gospel can heal. Prejudice and partiality are enemies of the gospel. And then I ask the question, can you see, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, why it is imperative that we appoint men to the office of elders who are qualified and called to be there? Man, if you start lessening this stuff, you create a big mess in the church, even with one elder who goes off the tracks. So this brings us to the last point, number three, cautious ordination of elders. Rushing the ordination process is a recipe for disaster. Verse 22, 
Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now here, laying on of hands, as it is in other passages of Scripture, refers to ordaining an elder to the gospel ministry, which must be done in a slow, prudent, and thorough process. Now let me ask you a few questions here. Do you want a ladies' man leading you? How about a drunk giving you counsel? Let's say that you, you actually stray from Christ and you need to be confronted for your sin and brought back and restored. Let's say that's where you're at. God forbid that. Do you want an angry and violent man to come and confront you about that? Should a man be your pastor because he's hard up for cash? Do you want to ask deep theological questions that have big ramifications for your life to a man who misunderstands Scripture and will mislead you with bad theology? Now, no elder is perfect. There is a tension with all of this and how we, we work out as fallen men, but sometimes these sins, they're hidden, they're systemic. It's like across the board, it's part of who the man is, and rushing the process of ordination may lead to these situations and much worse. So Timothy couldn't join in the sins of others. He needed to keep himself pure, innocent, and chaste. But, but he had to avoid being hasty with ordination as well. Because in one sense, when you ordain someone prematurely, when they have all of this stuff, then when they eventually that sin comes out, then you're partly responsible because you didn't do the good work of vetting the man before. You see what I'm saying? You share in the guilt there because you were irresponsible. You got to test. You got to evaluate. Irresponsibility adds culpability when it comes to ordination. Perfect? No. Qualified? Absolutely, absolutely. So please understand this. The qualifications for elders should never, ever, 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 ever be compromised or diminished for the sake of getting more elders or appeasing the man who wants to be one or, or to appease the wishes of certain people in the congregation because the problems created by hasty ordination are devastating to a church and insulting to the gospel. Now, let's put this where, where it counts. Do you know that in our Constitution, mandates, our Constitution right now as it stands, mandates that we have three elders in addition to the pastor? Okay. No matter what, we must have three elders to fill that spot in addition to the pastor. Now, let me ask the question, what if God raises up two qualified and called elders? Now, we're a smaller church. That's absolutely likely to happen, okay? That's a, that's a very, very dangerous and unbiblical stipulation in our Constitution. Now, I think it would be awesome if we had eight or nine qualified men shepherding this church. What a blessing it would be for me. What a blessing it would be for you. What a blessing it would be for our community. I mean, that would be awesome. But elders are only a blessing when they are qualified and ruling well, that's when they're a blessing. They're not a blessing when they don't rule well. Put in just one unqualified elder and things can get ugly, folks, really fast. Uh, verse 23 may seem a bit out of place, 
but I, I think this makes sense if I'm understanding it right. No longer drink only water, Paul says, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. For some reason, Timothy was drinking only water, and maybe it was asceticism, some like, hey, I got to do this for spiritual reasons and not be a drunkard and all of that. And maybe it was, it was a spiritual reason. Maybe it was to keep himself pure and, and to just give no occasion for Satan. We're not exactly sure there why. But as a pastor, his health was important. And here's where I think it might be. The stress of ministry could have been upsetting Timothy's stomach. I mean, he could have been like, man, these people are crazy. And I have stomach ulcers. Give me some wine. I mean... That, that could have been it, but either way, whatever it was, he had frequent ailments that were, were really getting him down there, and wine could help him medicinally. Now, notice Paul didn't say, yo, Timothy, go drown your problems in alcohol. That's the way to handle it. No, because if he did that, now he's disqualified to even do what he's called to do. You can't go that far. He said a little wine for the purpose of greater health was the idea. So better health, if the minister is in better health and he's leading, that's going to lend better to the ministry, uh, gospel ministry, effective gospel ministry. Now, in NASCAR, slower is not better. You've got to put the floor, you know, go, go at it. But these last two verses explain why slower is better when it comes to ordaining elders. Paul makes an excellent point. Look at it, verses 24 and 25. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Some people sin so boldly, so recklessly, so out in public you can see it, that they're headed right to judgment. You can tell those are not the guys that you put in as elders. You can rule them out right from the start. That guy is not living for Christ. He is headed right to, towards hell, I mean, towards the judgment of God. But then the sins of others are inconspicuous. They're hidden. It takes a while for them to get exposed and to surface. So if you ordain that man too quickly, and, and then you might not notice some of the things at first, and you say, yeah, let's, let's put him in there. And then all of a sudden, the severe character flaws start to surface and start to make things very difficult for the other elders as well as the church. And then when those sins are exposed and that man crashes, get ready for the rubble in the church. Get ready. You've seen it. Slow and thorough spiritual evaluation of potential elders helps uphold the beauty and value of the gospel by uncovering systemic sins and defects. Our Constitution mandates that a man must be a member in good standing of at least one year before he can be considered as an elder here. Now, that rule, that that stipulation is informed by Scripture. Can you see the connection there? Uh, maybe it should be longer, whatever, but there is that, that thing in there about saying, hey, in order to be there, we got to test you. We got to see your life. We got to see what kind of man you are for a while before we just make you an elder. So I think that's a, that there's weight to that one. But Paul hit it from the positive side as well. Some men are so passionate about Jesus, their good works are just coming out everywhere. You watch them and you're like, no joke, that guy should be an elder. Look at his life. I mean, he's, he's got it. He's being used of God. And you see Christ in him right away, and it's obvious. But in other cases, it takes a while for the good works and the character of a man to really come out. Um, you've got to watch for a while. And the more you are around this guy, the more you're saying, man, he's got some serious depth. 
I mean, he is helpful, and he's behind the scenes, but he's doing counseling. I mean, he, he just is so godly, and it took us a while to see it, but it was there. His character was there. His good works were more concealed, but, but now they're starting to surface. So you've got to give time for these things to come out in order to know uh, and make wise decisions. Paul's point is that as much as possible, elders are to be properly examined, and hasty ordination is to be entirely avoided. Potential elders must be tested, and then they must be proven qualified as much as our limited knowledge allows. Here, for what this is worth, I think there's biblical merit to this, but here's two tests that I think are probably most effective for whether a man should be in the role of elders. Look at two things from his life. Number one, how is he pastoring his family? How is he pastoring his family? And number two, is he already shepherding people without the title of elder? Because then you know the heart of the ministry is in the man. And he just wants God's sheep to flourish. And so he's shepherding, but he doesn't have the title. Now, our church does a lot of things. We are quite active for a small church, which is cool to be a part of. But do you know who we really are and what we're supposed to be doing? Do you know that? Would you be able to explain, like, here is who we are as a church and This is what we're actually supposed to be doing. We are the household of God. We are the church of the living God. We are a pillar and buttress of the truth. And that means that our primary purpose as a church is to uphold the truth, to uphold the gospel, to put it up there and draw attention to it and point people to Christ. That is what we are supposed to do. Hoist it up, let people admire the gospel. And as much as we do that, we're going to be a healthy church 1 Timothy is telling us exactly how to do that as a church. Verses 17 through 25, this is just feeding in to how we uphold the gospel for people to see. You have to have leadership in place. Good, qualified, godly, biblical leadership done Christ's way. And when it is, that gospel, that gospel can be held up. Here's how I'll close. If you really know who was in that manger uh, over 2,000 years of, ago, if you really know who, who, who is that, who, what, who was that, then you know how important leadership is, ruling and shepherding. You know how important preaching and teaching are, if you know who's in that manger. You know how important accountability is for godliness if you know who's in that manger. They're all so important because you receive the grace of God through these things. And that strengthens your love for the shepherd. For the shepherd who rules and leads and provides for you well. Well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, clear word from 1 Timothy, God. There is a connection to the supremacy of Christ as the head of the church and as the king of the universe. Uh, That small child that laid there was a king, a precious king, a precious ruler, a precious shepherd. And God, he came to give his life for the sheep so that he could then lead the sheep into life abundant, into the green pastures. And God, he set up Uh, an organizational structure to the church so that elders could serve under him as under shepherds, lesser shepherds, to shepherd your people. 
to take care of them, to love them, to serve them, to be an example for them. God, I pray for our elders here. I pray that they would be godly. I pray that they would be men of the word, men of integrity, men of grace and compassion and love for your sheep, men who would die for the benefit of the sheep. And God, we're weak men, so I ask that you strengthen us by your Holy Spirit, which we need so desperately to do anything right. And God, I pray for your dear sheep that they may see the love and the care of the chief shepherd through their elders. And that God, here at Jerusalem Church, we may have a very special thing going in our leadership and how the leadership cares for the church and how the church responds to the leadership. God, may we be a church that does this Jesus' way so that up, up, up the gospel goes so that people can see it and be drawn to it and love it and cherish Christ with all of their heart. Uh, God, help us to do this for your glory and your fame all across the world, we pray. Amen.